Welcome to Resilient Minds 365, where we discuss the resilient stories of entrepreneurs, professionals, and students with mental illnesses to encourage you to strive, thrive, and live in abundance. I'm your host, Cleone Crawford. another episode of Resilient Minds 365. I'm Cleone Crawford, your host. As you guys know, usually on our show on Resilient Minds 365, we usually interview a different guest for the show, but today we're going to do something a little different. Today we will be reading a portion of my book, The Music of My Life. So I will be reading some of my book and just to get just to give you guys a teaser as to what the book is about if you'd like to get a copy of the book the book is available on Amazon and if you just go to my website at www.cleonicrawford.com you'll get a link to see where it is on Amazon it's $25 for the paperback and $10 for the uh in Canada for the um the ebook so here is the book let's get started with the book let's start with the introduction writing this book was a long time coming for years I had been writing bits and pieces of my story in journals and on social media I knew one day I'd write a book I had gone through so much and I knew that I wanted to encourage someone I'm so glad that I have been able to finally write this story. My aim is to raise awareness for mental health and give you an inside look at what bipolar disorder can look like. In this story, I have been very transparent and have shared as much of my story as I could remember. I have decided to be quite vulnerable and transparent in sharing this story and therefore would like to give you a disclaimer as there is one section of the book where I talk about sex. Some people may be uncomfortable with this topic and may want to skip that section. I speak about this in chapter 13. If you would rather skip that part of the book, that's fine. Sometimes mental illness can be ugly and there are parts of my story that can be troubling. However, if you can help someone to know that they can overcome despite their dark seasons, then I feel like I have accomplished my, my goal. For years, I told I, I was I was told I should write a book, but it was only a thought. However, it wasn't until Shelley Jarrett of SMJ magazine one morning on in 2017 asked me to write my story for a future project that we will be working on that I actively started to write this book in 2018. I would go to the library and write and write. Though I was writing, I didn't have a target date date. Then in January, 2019, I met my now mentor, Victoria A. Morgan, who challenged me in a mentorship mastermind to complete my book in one month. I was fearful and did not think that it would be possible. However, despite this, I took on the challenge and completed my book in February, 2019. I'm very thankful I was able to complete it and hope it, that you will be inspired. There are so many people I'd like to first thank First, I'd like to thank my family for standing for by me in the difficult seasons of my life. I'd also like to thank my friends who stood by me 
Furthermore, I'd like to thank my pastor, Pastor Castro, and church, APC Ministries, for loving me and supporting me despite the difficult seasons I put them through. It has been a rough battle, but yet I made it. Finally, I would like to thank all the people who pre-purchased their copy of my book as this helped me raise the capital to pay for the publishing fees. You are all amazing. I pray that you are all blessed and enlightened by this book and that it teaches you about empathy for those living with mental illness. The struggle is real, y'all. Blessings, Cleone. Chapter one, Big Pharma. Cleone, go to bed. Why are you staring at me like that? Shouted my mother. And suddenly it happened. My body started to shake wildly until I fell to the ground, continuing to shake. I bit my tongue and blood started to ooze out. Finally, I wet myself. My nightgown and was wet and soaked in urine. This was the, my first epileptic seizure. I was definitely not, it was definitely not my last. The next thing I remember was being in the emergency room with wires hooked up to my body as I opened my eyes to see my mother looking over me with concern. She was relieved that I was that I that I finally regained consciousness. As my as any mother would be, she was happy that I was all right. Not knowing how I got to the emergency room, I questioned, where am I and how did I get here? My mother then explained that my first that I had my first epileptic seizure. I was only 12 years old at the time and did not understand epilepsy. However, Epilepsy would soon become a part of my life. I remember going to my first neurologist where they told my mother that I would have epilepsy for a long time, maybe even the rest of my life. I became sorrowful. However, they also gave me my first medication. That was the first, that was the beginning of Big Pharma being introduced into my life. I would take the medication, but I would still have seizures. It was like a routine every Saturday night. I would watch Matt TV with my younger brother and then fall asleep on the couch. When my mother came in from a show or party, she would find me on the sofa and ushered me to bed. Then it would happen. I would have a seizure. It was either at the top of the stairs in the bathroom or as I was about to climb into bed. No matter how it happened, it would happen. We kept keeping we kept trying different medication and nothing worked until I tried Epival. This medication worked very well. It reduced my seizures drastically from weekly to quarterly. However, it made me gain a lot of weight and I was overly tired. After years of dealing with epilepsy, we as a family learned that I, if I was sleeping, not to wake me as that this might trigger a seizure. With that said, if my family found me sleeping, they all knew never to wake me in fear that I might become ill and have a seizure. Having epilepsy became very difficult. I would seize at school, parties, and out in the street. Hospitals became my new best friend. Despite taking medication, I would still have seizures. Then I met a new neurologist, Dr. Yuffie. I really liked him. Due to my complaints about my ex excessive weight gain and tiredness, he changed my medication and put me on something new called Lamictal, also known as Lamotrigine. This medication worked very well. 
With that said, I still had to ensure that I had gotten enough sleep because not getting enough would trigger a seizure. Throughout high school, my seizures seemed to be under control. I did not have as many seizures as I did in the past. I was grateful. Entering high school, West Humber Collegiate Institute was awesome. I made some great friends and enjoyed my time there. I was smart and got good grades. I was an A student. Though an A student, I loved to party. At the tender age of 13, I started to go clubbing with my adopted sister. I was only 13, but I had the body of an 18-year-old. I looked good. I would dance all night as I loved music. When I was 16, I met a biracial man, a mixture of Chinese and Black. Like most men, he wanted sex. We dated and I lost my virginity at 16, sweet 16. That's when it started. Over the next five years, I had multiple partners. They were different races and different religions. My relationships were very short-lived. However, I did have a main partner over that time. He was my default partner. I really enjoyed having sex with him. We never really dated, but he liked to take me, but he did take me to my prom. Later on in life, I would discover why I enjoyed sex so much. During the time I was growing up, it was customary for us to relocate on a regular basis. Almost every time we moved, I had to change schools. By the time I was in my mid-teens, I had been to seven schools. This time, this one time we moved to Batterson Wilson. I love this place. Though much smaller than our big house in Etobicoke, it was on top of a store and the neighborhood was quite was quiet and peaceful. While living in Bathurst and Wilson, I had to change schools again. I went to Sir Sanford Fleming Academy for one year for grade 10. The friends I made were mostly men. I really didn't like my school and I wish I would go back to West Humber. For the first time ever, I got into a fight and lost. I was beaten up by a white girl. It was very shameful. People made fun of me and I grew tired of that school. So the following year in grade 11, I went back to West Humber. Every day I would take the bus for one hour just to be at school where my friends were. I was happy again. I stayed at West Humber until the end of grade 12 and I loved it. While I was there, I started to go to church at 16 with my best friend, Janice. I would take the bus to her house Sundays and get picked up by the church, NLPC. I really liked that church. It was different. I still went to parties, but I was changing. Sunday school, led by the pastor's son, Brother Richard, was challenging my beliefs. I started to tell Brother Richard, who was a youth pastor, that I would get baptized soon, but would, be, would keep changing my mind. One day at 17, while in grade 12, I decided to get baptized. It felt so refreshing. However, when I went home, I was mocked by my family and called a Grishkin, short for fake Christian. They didn't believe that I could be a Christian because of my partying ways. However, 28 years later, this Christian is still here. Also at 17, I was forced to leave my mother's home due to stress and the increasing seizures. My brother had started stealing from me and such as my clothing, money, and whatever he could find. 
This caused us to get into fights, fist fights. I would threaten, threaten him to hurt him with a knife. Then I would have a seizure due to the stress. It became very serious. To escape this, I moved into my paternal grandmother's home. It was very different. My grandmother was a disciplinarian. She was strict and didn't speak my love language. According to Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, my love language was affirmation. When I lived with my mother, she would have constantly affirmed me with praises. She would remind me that I could do anything. She would tell me that I was smart and it gave me strength. I didn't realize how powerful words could be at the time, but that was what kept me together. My grandmother's love language was giving gifts, which she showed me daily by providing a clean, stable home with a home-cooked meal. This was good for me. I needed stability and she provided that. However, she never affirmed me. Sometimes she would say things like, you're not smart enough, or you should stay on welfare and go and forget university. This hurt a lot. However, I had years of affirmations for my mother to lean on. This kept me going. Months later, after applying to three universities, I got the acceptance package from the University of Toronto. I was ecstatic. This was the best news I could ever get. This is proof that I was smart. It made me feel so good. However, one day my best friend and church brother, Robert came over. While we were joking around, my grandmother berated me and cussed me and called me nasty. That was it. I had already started to become depressed with my grandmother's comments. My best friend was in the living room. While there, saddened and angry and with tears streaming down my face, I picked up a knife and put it to my throat. I was going to kill myself until my friend came into the room and shouted, Cleone, no! He grabbed the knife away from me and comforted me while I sobbed. Sadly, those words were starting to affect my mental health. When university came, I was a Christian and therefore had conceived conservative beliefs. I started to wear skirts all the time and stopped partying. With all the parties happening, it became very difficult. I started to feel like I didn't fit in. Though I made friends, I didn't have a social life with them. I focused on my friends from church. University was hard. I took psychology, sociology, French, and Spanish. Although they were very interesting, I started to fall behind. For the first time in my life, I got C's and failed a course. This was so discouraging. I was put on academic probation. If I did not increase my grades, I would be suspended for one year. Sadly, at the end of my second year, I didn't increase my grades and was suspended for, one, for a year. This was devastating. In addition to this, my epilepsy came back due to the lack of sleep. I would have seizures on campus and in class. This was so embarrassing. I was taken to various downtown hospitals. It was so bad that I wound up being admitted to every hospital downtown from Mount Zion, Mount Zion, Sinai to Toronto General. To add insult, I would have seizures at home. I'd go into the bathroom into my, in my slip and would fall off the toilet with my underwear down. This became a problem because my grandmother's tenants would find me. My grandmother would cuss me off for not dressing modest enough at home at bed. To prevent being exposed, my grandmother bought me more modest nightgowns. 
the one problem, the one problem was solved as I was covered up. This did not stop the seizures. While suspended, I applied for numerous jobs and finally got a hired by Bell Mobility Call Center. I worked at Bell Mobility for two years. After my first year, I decided to go back to school to complete my degree. I worked on the student schedule for a year and then quit the job because it was becoming too difficult to manage the two. I returned back to school and changed my program. I started to take the commerce courses like economics, accounting, and calculus. I didn't do too well in these courses. So I came back to the following year and changed to focus on Spanish and history. My grades improved drastically and I started to get A's and B's again. I was so proud of myself. However, due to my GPA being low from my commerce courses, I was put on academic probation and was up for suspension again. This suspension was far more serious. It was supposed to be for three years and I only had two credits left to graduate. I begged and appealed the decision and praised God, they showed me mercy. They let me complete my year. This was 2005. Here I was living with my mother at a new address close to Jane and Shepherd. My sisters would have friends come over all hours of the night, which would make it difficult for me to study. It was imperative that I did well in school, especially since it was my last year. I decided to move out and live on campus. I found a cheap dorm only $550 per month called Tartu College. It was tiny and I shared the apartment with four roommates. One of my roommates was a graduate student but had the worst body odor ever known to man. I think she was partially homeless. I don't know. While on campus, I started to make new friends and got invited to a few parties. It was a nice change. However, I declined the invitations to go out because I was a Christian whose beliefs didn't support the lifestyle of clubbing. In my last year, I took two African history courses. These courses and the respective instructors changed my life. My two teachers were phenomenal and got me to change how I viewed Black women in society. Afua Cooper taught me about African-Canadian history and Nakaniki Musisi taught me about elite Black women. These courses were powerful as they inspired me. I decided to create a nonprofit called Black Seed. I do not remember what the acronym stood for, but I do remember the impact it had on my life. I, rem I became very obsessed with this new organization that I was forming. I was going to register as a nonprofit and bring it bring in mentors and professionals into at-risk communities like Jamestowns, like Jamestown in Rexdale, and inspire the Black community into pursuing entrepreneurship. I spent all my time on this new organization, but then something happened. I had a shift in my behavior. This was the first time, the first occurrence in what has become a lifelong cyclical pattern. I started to stay up really late at night and travel at night because I thought I was a spy. I thought I, I was on a mission to help black people. I had the answers. I tried to recruit my friends from church and didn't get much response. I felt rejected, but yet I continued to work on black seed. I spent hundreds of dollars on supplies for my new organization. I would travel all night I would travel all around the city 
at two to four in the morning. Other people started to notice my behavior and grew concerned. However, no one had the courage to tell me that something was wrong. One day, I went to my pastor to tell him about my idea and he discouraged me from doing it. But in my eyes, he didn't know what he was talking about. So I ignored him. I grew worse. I started to talk very fast and ramble from subject to subject. January 2006 came and my OSAF check arrived. I spent almost all of my living expenses, money on more supplies for the organization. I remember taking these supplies to my grandmother's house. She knew that something was wrong, but instead of talking with me, she cussed me out. She said, you need to stop this crap and relax yourself. You're going from here to there and you're not making any sense. I ignored, I ignored her efforts and went back to peace and privacy of my dorm. My grandmother's words were a premonition that the up period of the cyclical pattern was to be followed with it by a down period. One morning that January, I tried to get out of bed and I just couldn't. I started to cry uncontrollably. I didn't eat and I stayed in my room. I cried a lot and I didn't want to go to class or go for my morning jog as I started training for a marathon with a group called Jeans Marines. I lost all desire to do anything. When I finally left my apartment, I put no effort into finding something to wear and wore any house clothes. I would roam the streets and would cry for no apparent reason. I would also go to the subway platforms and try to talk myself into jumping off the platform, convincing myself that it would ease the pain. Though the, the thoughts were there, I couldn't follow through. I decided that I, it was time to get help. I called my best friend, Janice, and told her that I needed help. I do not know who suggested CAMH, but there, but that is where we went. She stayed with me and comforted me. That was the first day I learned the term bipolar, bipolar two. When I explained my behavior over the past two months, they had told me that I was exhibiting signs that I had bipolar two. According to DSM, the DSM-5, there are two types of bipolar disorder. Bipolar 1, which has highs and lows with mania, and bipolar 2, which has highs and lows with hypomania. Hypomania is when you're extremely energetic, talkative, and confident with many creative ideas. Based on the diagnosis, I was told that my disorder was, too, was not too bad and I didn't need medication. I was referred to see a school psychiatrist I would, I would see, I would go weekly to see the psychiatrist and she was very helpful. While doing this, I would also continue jogging again every Saturday with my group, the Jeans Marines. I also, also returned back to school. The feelings of depression decreased and my energy was starting to come back. Then one day on Monday, March, 27, 2006, I learned that my cousin Jermaine Brown was just murdered. He was 22 years old and had a son. It was heartbreaking for me. I remember being in class and breaking down after seeing a newspaper reminding me of his death. My teacher consoled me. It was helpful, 
but this was truly difficult for me. I went to the funeral and sobbed at his passing. He was far too young to die. It was, this was hard. Because of this added stress, I, I stayed in counseling for six months. I was discharged from seeing my psychiatrist. And I was finally doing better. I had found out something about myself that wasn't just epilepsy and was going to be a part of my life from now on. Still, it would be another six years before I would encounter another bipolar episode. Chapter two. I made it, but not her. I finally finished my last credits and was ecstatic. I was going to graduate. It was really going to happen. I took my graduation photos and felt very proud. Another accomplishment at the time was my training. I had spent eight months training for a marathon in Columbus, Ohio. I did a five kilometer and a 10 kilometer run in Toronto, but it was now time for the big event. In October, 2006, I completed my first 42 kilometer marathon. 42 kilometer, kilometer full marathon. It took me five and a half hours to complete the race. I felt so accomplished. It took me a while to complete it, but I did it. Then the following month came November, 2006. It was my graduation. I was excited. I started to think back. After all the years of getting sick, being suspended, the death of my cousin, and then being diagnosed as bipolar, I was grateful. I remember standing in, in the line, waiting for my name to be called. I was shaking as I thought, of, thought back on what it took for me to get to this place. Then finally, I heard my name. As I took my diploma and shook the teacher's hands, here it goes. I shouted out aloud, hallelujah. People started to laugh and clap as I walked off the stage. I can, I can and can't believe I just did that, but I was overjoyed. It was only God that caused me to graduate despite my trials. At my graduation, I was only allowed two people. Since my father wasn't in town, I invited my pastor and my mother. They were both very proud of me. I did it. Just before graduation, I obtained a job at a law firm as a secretary through an employment agency. I did so well that the company offered a salary and hired me. I loved my job and the atmosphere at the law, of the law firm. Though I worked as a secretary, my goal was, was to be to one day become a lawyer. While working, I completed my LSAT and didn't get the grades I hoped for. In addition, after seeing the amount of hours that the lawyers had to put in, I decided that I no longer want to be a lawyer. Soon after, I had another career goal. One night, very early in the morning, I woke up and came up with the idea to design skirts and create an online directory that connected businesses online. I wrote my business plan that morning and shared my idea with my bosses. They thought it was great. That, was, that is why it came as a great shock that seemingly without warning, a few weeks later, I was fired from my job in April, 2007, due to my lateness. However, God knew what he was doing. One day, while in the JVS Employment Center 
in Jane Finch Mall looking for a new job, I learned about a new program called Sense Summer Program, Summer Company. Summer Company was a government-sponsored program that provided $3,000 to students who wanted to start their own business. I was taken aback with surprise as I had already had a business plan and an idea ready. The application was due in two weeks and I just, and I arrived just in time. I completed the paperwork and accepted and was accepted for the program. I started my new business in May, 2007 and was so excited. I was doing something new and exciting. I was going to sell my skirts in my new company, Sea Virtue. I decided the, I designed a website and within one month, I received 400 views. I was excited. Then another tragic event happened. On Saturday, June 2nd, 2007, at 9 a.m., I was awoke into a scream. My mother screamed my name and I ran upstairs. She was breathing heavily and could barely speak. There was a car accident, one dead, one alive. It's Alicia and Monique. Alicia was my sister and Monique was her best friend who was living with us. My mother temporarily and unofficially adopted her, her sister, Chanel and brothers, Trevon and Andrew. They were family. My heart sank and started to beat heavily. She continued, the police are on the way to explain everything. Call Felicia and Clinroy, my sister and brother. I started to make calls and we gathered in her living room. Both our families waited on the police. The police finally arrived and told us the details. Apparently, my sister, Alicia, and her best friend, was also like a sister, Monique, were in a tragic car accident. They were both in a taxi on their way from their aunt's house and were T-boned by a young man named Siobhan Joseph, 15, who was being chased by police as he had stolen his mother's car. As the police continued to tell the story, my sister, Felicia, screamed, got up, and ran outside, crying hysterically. She could not believe it. Our sister, this couldn't be real. They continued to say that we needed to go to the hospital and identify the body of the living teen. The living teen was at Sunnybrook Hospital. The police left. Then suddenly, Chanel, Monique's sister, arrives at the house. We tell her the story, and she runs outside, holding her head, screaming and crying. My sister was crying, but went after her. We then got in our cars and rushed to the hospital. When we arrived at the hospital, we were all frantic and on pins and needles. We didn't know which sister was in the waiting room. Was it Alicia? Was it Monique? And the doctor came out and spoke to my mom and Judith, the mother of Monique, and said they could both come in and identify the living daughter. When they returned, it turns out that the living daughter was my sister. She was on life support. Monique was dead. Her body parts lay splattered over the ground at the intersection of Islington Avenue and Finch Avenue West. When we were, when we learned the truth, we were both sad and relieved. One of them was living. However, one of them had died. 
I stood watching Judith, Chanel, Trevon, and Andrew sob as the reality of their sister and daughter was dead. It was surreal. I was grateful that my sister was still living. Well, at least we still have one of them living, but she was on in, gra in grave condition. As the hours passed, more and more people came to the hospital. My aunt, cousins, and her father gathered at the hospital. We waited for a miracle. I called up my friends and church family asking for prayer. The following day, I went to my church begging them to pray for my sister as she lay on life support. I wanted to, them to come to the hospital to pray for her. I wanted them to pray for a miracle at the hospital. None of them came. I went back to the hospital and the doctors gathered us together and said we needed to make a decision. He declared her brain dead and wanted us to donate her organs before they could no longer be used. He wanted to know if we wanted to take her off life support. It had only been a day. I wanted to wait a bit longer. My mother decided to take her off life support. I was so angry and resentful. How could she do this? Then, they then left the hospital while I remained. I decided that I would stay and pray for a miracle until they disconnected my sister. I decided, I truly believed that if I prayed hard enough, that God could cause her to rise up into consciousness. I prayed all night and did not sleep. Finally, I stopped praying for her to rise up. I said, Lord, if you choose to let her die, you have to pay me back. He chose to let her die. At 8 a.m. on Monday, June 4th, 2007, I watched as they wheeled my sister out of ICU into the operating room. I was devastated. I came home to a house filled with people. There were all kinds of people dropping in, offering their help and condolences. This lasted for days until the funeral. And the phone rang nonstop. Finally, I decided to create a Facebook group that had the information about the funeral and change our voicemail to reflect this. This was so helpful to, to, to many people. The funeral was held at Faith Sanctuary with over 1,100 people and the media in attendance. Since the two girls were so close, we decided to bury them together. They were two peas on a, two peas in a pod. The coffins lay side by side at the altar. However, Monique's casket remained closed due to the nature of her death. I remember walking up to the aisle to take a final look at my sister. She was so cold, but her makeup was done nice. She wore a beautiful gown with jewelry. However, her body looked stuffed. There were all kinds of people there. There were friends, family, and classmates and well-wishers. Throughout this whole time, I had kept it together. I consoled everyone because I was a Christian. I was a Christian in the family. I was the one that everyone expected to keep it together. However, finally at the graveyard, I no longer could hold it together. I started to wail and scream. I fell to my knees and, and screamed my sister's name as they lowered my sister and Monique's coffins. As soon as I screamed, the rest of my family started to wail. My brother fell to the ground crying. It was horrible. While all of this was happening, my team with Summer Company was so supportive. 
They gave me permission to leave the program if I needed to grieve. I chose to continue, continue running my business. It was hard, but I did it. During that same summer, once the funeral ended, I told my mother that I'd be leaving. Everyone had leaned on me for far too long. I needed to take a break. I decided to go to New York to stay with my aunt. I, I watched The Color Purple with Fantasia and met Tyler Perry. Then I took a bus to Atlanta, Georgia. I had been reading about Martin Luther King Jr. and wanted to visit his memorial grounds. Then I went to the visit the church of a powerful preacher I met in Canada. It was a great healing vacation. When I returned, I continued with the program and successfully finished it. At the end, I decided that I would return back to school to study fashion. I wanted to expand my business. I registered for school and would start in January in 2008. So I had a few months to wait. While waiting, I went to the Bree families of Ontario to grieve. I would attend their support group and listen to other grieving siblings talk about their, their family members. It was difficult, but I became better. I decided that I would work with the Bree families of Ontario to create a support group. Then I took a, took a took scholarship. Then I took a scholarship in memory of my sister and Monique's name. I held a press conference at the Queen's Park Legislative Media Room to promote this. It was featured all over the all over the media for the program. Some thought it was good, and there were others that doubted that this would last. Due to my work, I had received an award for an Outstanding Youth Award by JBS Strictly Business Event. Then I hosted an event called Gospel Arts and Praise in memory of my sister Alicia and Monique. I raised $1,500 from this event. I was so proud of myself. It was hosted on June 8, June 2008. In January 2008, I started school at George Brown College in Fashion Design and, and Techniques program. I was doing really well and got good grades in the first semester. I even had the opportunity to meet a mentor, Shernette Swaby of Project Runway Canada. The second semester began and I did well there, well, until there was an incident. A friend of mine started to bully in my other friend and I decided to step in. She told me to mind my business. I told her to stop messing with someone who could not defend themselves. She decided to curse me out. I, I responded and retaliated, cursing her back. This continued throughout the hallways and down those stairs into the cafeteria. I had my toolbox. She continued to taunt me. Finally, I went into my toolbox and pulled out my scissors. I pointed them at her and she responded, what are you going to do, cut me? I realized that what I had, what I did, and I put a scissors back and knocked her out. She scratched me and we were on top of each other. Then suddenly two security officers came and broke us apart. She screamed, charge her, she tried to cut me. The police were called and for the first time in my life, I was arrested. I went to jail and they put me in the questioning room. After a few hours, they finally released me on my own reconnaissance. However, I would have to come to court. I re returned back to school. It was not the same. 
I was given a restraining order and was not permitted to be within 100 meters of the victim. This created problems. By Sarah on campus, I was supposed to go the other way. Also, if we had classes together, I could not be in that class with her. It wasn't fair. I tried to work with the teachers, but in the end of the day, it was decided that I would be suspended for a year as required to have a psychiatric assessment to return. So that is the first two chapters of this book, The Music of My Life by myself, Cleone Crawford. If you enjoyed that book, feel free to check it out on Amazon by going, going on to my website, www.cleonecrawford.com. Thanks for listening today. I hope you guys enjoyed. If you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to tag me on Instagram on Resilient Minds 365 or only Cleone. And remember guys, mental illness is not the end. You can still strive, thrive, and live in abundance. Until next time, I'm your host, Cleone Crawford, and I'm signing off. Bye-bye. Oh, 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 oh,